people believed that the introduction of a giant like McDonald's into inner city communities was a signal of progress. The fact that an African-American could be at the helm, that a business like that could operate successfully, that could be a presence in the community. A number of Black communities really supported it. And McDonald's particularly had the sanction of many of the giants of the civil rights movement behind it, endorsing this as an opportunity for African-American economic development. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the third season of Innovation for All. I'm your host, Dr. Shana Alkvist. In each episode this season, I will bring a deep dive interview on a topic related to innovation and diversity. This season, I'm trying to narrow the focus a bit, focusing more exclusively on diversity and inclusion issues and a little bit less on sort of broad social impact issues, although we will make sure those are included as well. Now, that doesn't mean that these are going to be softball issues or ones that will leave you totally hopeless, (laughs) hopefully at least. They won't be cheerleader either. It won't be just, you know, women can do anything kinds of conversations. I want to continue the deep dives into single issues where innovation and diversity intersect. So this season, we're going to look at issues like the role that website providers play in perpetuating revenge porn. We'll look at gendered issues in the gig economy, which gig work is dominated by women versus men, and why does that matter? How can self-driving cars help people with disabilities? And what are automakers overlooking that make disability advocates concerned? But last of all, I want to hear from you. Is there a topic I've missed? Do you know a great guest we should have on the show? Reach out to me on Twitter at InForAllPodcast or leave me a voice message by clicking the link in the show notes. With that, let's turn to the premiere episode. In this episode, I spoke with Marsha Chatlin, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University and the author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. She's a current co-host of the Slate podcast, The Waves, which covers feminism, gender, and current events. She's been named a top influencer in academia in recognition of her social media campaign, hashtag Ferguson Syllabus, which implored educators to facilitate discussions about the crisis in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. This is a super fascinating conversation about the role of McDonald's in the Black community. And what I found so interesting about it was it's almost exclusively not covering things you may have already heard. So when I think about McDonald's and quote-unquote social justice, I think about maybe its role in the obesity epidemic, maybe its poor performance on workers' rights. But what Marsha talks about is its role in elevating Black entrepreneurs and even its ties to the civil rights movement. We talk about how McDonald's propelled marketing campaigns that focused on Black America in its own right at a time when nobody was doing that or certainly not doing that very well. We also talk about this in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, Marsha talked a lot about the role that private markets can play to support us versus when a public entity needs to step in. And as you can imagine, that's a conversation we're having actively in response to COVID-19 as well. Marsha does a spectacular job at illustrating the messy, complex relationship McDonald's has had with the Black community. I especially enjoyed her answers to the Think a Little Different round, so please stay tuned to the very end. Her book? 
franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, is available now. Enjoy. Dr. Marsha Chatlin, welcome to Innovation for All. Thank you so much. So the book is Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. How did you get interested in this project? So I grew up going to McDonald's all the time. As a child of the 80s, we watched a lot of TV and we ate fast food. And I felt like there were very little judgments on um, this way of life. And one of the things I found in going to McDonald's all the time as a kid was that one of my favorite McDonald's was one in downtown Chicago, and its theme was African-American history. So if you went to the McDonald's, you could see portraits of the Tuskegee Airmen. I remember as a kid, shortly after the passage of the federal legislation that created the Martin Luther King holiday, the local African-American franchise owners commissioned a video about Martin Luther King. It had a little song that played nationally. And then they featured an interview with Martin Luther King's personal secretary. And she told these stories of his kids visiting him at his office. And all of these kind of memories about African-American culture and history, which later became my topic of interest as a scholar, a lot of it started at McDonald's, strangely. And the first time that I participated in a Black History Month quiz bowl that was on local TV, the prizes were paid for by the Black McDonald's Operators Association in Chicago. And as I got older and more interested in history and thinking about the places in which people learn history, I thought about McDonald's and that relationship between McDonald's and the dissemination of cultural knowledge before African-American studies departments were in more colleges and universities, before there were a lot of books for young readers about Black history, for me, all started at McDonald's. And I think for a lot of African-Americans, they've realized that so much of their kind of cultural and community life was facilitated by Black franchise owners. What did the early days of fast food franchising look like, especially as it pertained to white America? So when we think about fast food today, we have a hard time imagining a world without it because it has become such a fixture in our built environment and such a fixture in our food options. But the very early days of early 20th century fast food was really based on this idea of cheap, affordable foods available to people working on construction sites, as well as late night revelers who, after a night of drinking, would want something like a burger. The revolution in fast food occurred a little bit later in the 1940s and 50s with the development of the highway system, as well as one of the key contributions of McDonald's to the industry in that it converted McDonald's drive-in from a place where teenagers hung out and maybe got into a little bit of trouble to a place that was appropriate for a family. And once the fast food industry became a family-friendly option for folks in suburbs and folks driving along highways and cars with a little bit of disposable income, some of the standard bearers of the industry started to take form. And that's the type of marketing that they do, as well as their appeal to children with toys and things like Happy Meals, as well as jingles and cartoon characters. 
So this is really the beginning of making food sort of an everyday luxury. Yes, it's the experience of dining out that is casual, that's accessible, that does not create anxiety financially or socially. And so a lot of what you just described to me sounds like the description for maybe white America in the mid-60s. What was the experience of Black America at this time? And again, to set the context, the mid-60s, a little bit of stuff going on on from a civil rights perspective. (laughs) Right. What was the role of McDonald's in sort of shaping those early interactions in restaurants for Black Americans? So one of the things that happens in the 1960s, the fast food industry, is that for the first time, it is thinking about moving outside of the place where it has been most profitable. And those are the bedroom communities and suburbs that we often associate with the white flight culture of major urban areas where we see this incredible move of white, upwardly mobile Americans out of the cities into the suburbs. The second challenge that the fast food industry has to contend with is the issue of civil rights, particularly the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the activism that led to its passage. And so in my book, what I reveal is that when we think about the integration of public accommodations in the 1960s, We think of lunch counters like Woolworths and other brands that are no longer with us, but McDonald's is actually part of that history as well. It is part of the history of college students and young activists targeting restaurants because they refuse service to African-Americans. So the 1960s brings this real tension to the fast food industry about its expansion in places where the fight for racial equality and racial justice are playing out. So it sounds like while one might think of sort of sit-ins occurring in these stereotypical textbook kinds of settings like the Woolworths counter, that McDonald's is also a place where this is happening as well. And especially given the context of McDonald's mostly being set up in the suburbs, you can imagine that that would be, as you mentioned, white flight, this idea that white Americans are leaving the cities in part to escape sort of integration efforts. Absolutely. And the fact that McDonald's is a franchise also complicates its narrative relative to civil rights because what they did was essentially what states did in conflict with the federal government's call to end segregation. As they said, local custom and practice will dictate. And so while McDonald's did not tell anyone to create separate counters or refuse service, they depended on the local segregation laws and practices in the South to maintain that environment in their stores. And after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, McDonald's restaurants and other fast food restaurants in the South tried to resist getting seated uh, dine-in facilities and wanted to keep the drive-in model and the drive window or the rather the walk-up window model to prevent a situation in which they had to contend with the fact that segregating seating was no longer legal. Well, and you touched on briefly in there this idea of the franchise model. Just for context for people who might not be familiar with it, can you say a little bit about what the franchise business model looks like so that we can kind of draw back to that throughout our conversation? So I like to liken it to a weird family dynamic in which the parents set all the rules and the children make all the money. And what I mean by that... (laughs) Only if either of those were true. (laughs) Right. Is that the 
franchisor gets to set the terms of the contract of the ground lease and the rents for the facility. They pick the suppliers, they pick the uniforms, they determine the terms of the promotions and the advertisements. And the franchisee, if they follow these rules and they work really hard, they're able to extract whatever is left over after they pay the fees and meet the terms of that agreement. And so as a result, there's these weird ways in which the franchisor has all of this power and the franchisee is trying to use that power in order to become wealthy. But at the end of the day, the franchise parent company will set all the rules. And so if a franchisee wants to save money on tomatoes, they can't then seek out their own suppliers for tomatoes. They have to comply with what the franchise is saying. And in some of the smaller franchise models, not like the big giants like McDonald's and Burger King, franchisees really, really struggle in these systems because they're not able to staff their restaurants with lots of people. Sometimes you have first-generation immigrant families going into a franchise and then family members are working around the clock in order to maintain it. And so it's a system that we often associate with the fast food industry, but many types of businesses are franchises in the United States. And I guess just in the interest of transparency, the thing that appeals to some people about franchises is this idea that you kind of outsource a lot of the work. You don't have to find a distributor. You don't have to come up with your own branding. But it sounds like that's sort of a double-edged sword that while you don't have to control those things, you also don't get to control those things. Absolutely. And that is where, in my book, when I look at the experiences of African-Americans who enter fast food franchising... What I discover is that they really do represent the contradictions of the system, because on one hand, they're very excited to have the opportunity to enter business, especially during a time where there were so many barriers to entry. And because of the disparities in where their restaurants are located, in their resources and social capital, they find that doing business is taking a greater toll on their enterprise than their white counterparts. Well, so before we get too far ahead, let's back up. So we talked about how McDonald's early days, it's set up in the suburbs. Eventually, it needs to change that business model. It sounds like they're a little bit resistant to sort of integration. What is it that made McDonald's suddenly decide that they needed to invest in more urban areas and as a consequence, more Black communities? Well, what happens is that In 1968, after Martin Luther King's assassination, there's a series of uprisings in major American cities. And this uprising is not unlike other uprisings that occur throughout the 1960s, where the racial tensions between community members and the police across racial lines explode in property damage and violence. And in 1968, after... King's assassination is processed a bit and people are starting to study why are American cities burning, they come to a series of conclusions and people are talking about their frustration with police violence and they're talking about the fact that decent housing is hard to come by and they talk about concerns about their children's schools. And they also offer the feedback that they would love an opportunity to patronize more Black-owned businesses, that they are in a commercial marketplace where they don't have tons of options, and when they exercise those options, they're treated with a lack of respect, they're overcharged for inferior goods. And so this 
becomes part of the analysis of, well, what's the solution? And for corporations like McDonald's that did have some restaurants in some of these inner city communities that rose up, they are concerned about their investment. And some of their white franchisees don't want to do business in these communities anymore. So McDonald's gives an opportunity for white franchise owners to vacate their properties, to turn over their contracts to black franchise owners and go to the suburbs. And I think it's really striking that so much of the language of housing segregation is replicated in talking about franchising. Can you say more about that? Well, it's about this idea of abandoning property or abandoning something in order to be protected in the suburbs. So in the same ways that entire communities where there's African-American homeowners, a lot of those homes were once owned by whites. You see in some cities like Milwaukee and Chicago and Detroit, churches that become very important in the African-American community, their early stories, they were synagogues or white ethnic churches that then turned over to African-Americans. And so this idea that African-Americans are inheriting the cast-offs of white America also comes up in this story because these restaurants that the first cohort of African-American franchise owners are able to invest in and operate, a lot of them are abandoned stores. And McDonald's does this pretty openly. They hire a gentleman who was a McDonald's manager to recruit Black franchise owners. The very first Black franchised McDonald's opens on the south side of Chicago in December of 1968. And that's no coincidence that he is stepping into a restaurant that was closed after the King uprisings. So there's this way in which African-Americans are trying to exercise as much power and seize upon as many opportunities as possible because whites have abandoned parts of the country. And at the same time, the federal government is also abandoning some of the social programs of the war on poverty. And the march of civil rights is moving away from access to equal rights and access to the vote. Some of these victories have already been won, and the pivot towards business creates this perfect storm for McDonald's. So in many ways, it sounds like the rise of McDonald's in the Black community is not unlike other narratives that Black Americans have been experiencing. What is sort of the silver lining in all this? So now you have white franchisee owners leaving urban centers and Black franchisee owners taking over. What are some of the benefits of that to sort of shift gears a little bit? Well, what it provides is for a group of very industrious, very idealistic and ambitious men, it gives them an opportunity to have something close to ownership. And again, franchises are never fully owned by the person who franchises them, but it is a viable and it proves to be a successful business that allows them to open the doors for people in other ways. And so one of the things that happens with a lot of these Black franchise owners is that they're hiring African-American youth, a population that had in some American cities unemployment rates north of 50%. They are pooling their resources and creating philanthropic opportunities for historically Black colleges and the United Negro College Fund. They are supporting African-American 
political office seekers by registering folks to vote and being a presence in the community. And so in many ways, they are helping to fill that gap between what the state has neglected to provide and what the community needs. And so I think that a lot of the ways that we see corporate social responsibility today within the fast food industry was very much shaped by the good acts of these African-American franchise owners because they were so proximate to the communities in which they had their businesses and they were so aware of the needs of those communities. And so I think that that is perhaps the silver lining of the story, but I think the cloud that it lines is one that is particularly troubling because these resources were so desperately needed in a lot of the communities in which these men operated their restaurants. So as time goes on, and and actually correct me if I'm wrong, as time goes on, it seems like McDonald's understands that there is an immense business opportunity in these Black communities. And it even seems like, to me, begins to take on some of this, again, corporate responsibility type role themselves as a corporate entity, not just as Black franchisees. Is that right? Well, what happens is it it helps transform the culture of McDonald's because these stores are profiting quite a bit from the African-American consumer market. And what it does is it helps open the doors for other types of businesses and vendors to help transform the corporate culture of McDonald's. So you have the employment of more African-American attorneys and accountants. McDonald's becomes considered an industry leader on the issue of internal promotions and diversity. They take it very seriously that they are a company that is considered one that will give people that first start. Outside of the corporate culture, one of the things I think is interesting is that the fact that African-American franchise owners are big advocates of getting culturally appropriate and specific advertisements into Black publications and on Black radio and being featured during programs that appeal to Black audiences opens up this incredible space for African-American market research firms and advertisers. And so it starts to have a domino effect because when you think about all of the industries that are engaged in fast food, you start to see these different places in which these operators, because of their financial success, are advocating for the diversification of the professional auxiliary team to McDonald's corporate. One of the things you mentioned there that I I thought was so fascinating about this story was this idea of, you didn't frame it this way, but McDonald's is sort of a pioneer in Black marketing. Can you talk a little bit about sort of those early efforts to market to Black Americans and then what eventually became of them? Absolutely. So throughout the 20th century, there had been market research firms and advertisers that tried to create products and create a system to sell products to African-Americans, especially during the Great Migration period, where you see the urbanization of African-Americans out of the Deep South. But in the 1960s, there still were very few opportunities for African-Americans to see African-Americans in advertising that wasn't simply shading in the color of the the drawn model in a newspaper ad or simply changing the photograph but keeping the copy. And so 
when the National Black McDonald's Operators Association was formed in 1972, one of the early things that they advocated for was that McDonald's spend some resources hiring a Black advertising firm, and that was Burrell Communications, which was based in Chicago, to create a series of ads that really spoke to the African-American consumer. So whether it's the use of clothing and various aesthetic adornments, whether it was the types of scenes that they captured in the ads, whether it was the use of Black celebrities or thinking about the language that was used in the copy, they really wanted to talk about how does the Black consumer understand its relationship to McDonald's compared to other consumers. And it created just this incredible boom in the advertising industry especially for Burrell Communications and other similarly situated agencies, because it gave them the opportunity to try to speak to African-American consumers with a somewhat authentic voice. Now, some of these ads, which you can Google and look up, do not age very well. They are a little problematic. But I think at the heart of them, the thing that I've come to appreciate after writing this book is again, it provided this incredible space for Black creative work to find an audience. And when I think about the number of illustrators and models and photographers and background actors and actresses and dancers and musicians who had an opportunity because of this type of marketing, I realize that there's a kind of a multiple effect of this story. And the advertising strategies were very successful because They, in many ways, were responding to the lack of representation in mainstream television and advertising that I think we still grapple with today. Well, and without putting you in an uncomfortable position, can you give a specific example of maybe an early effort that wasn't successful to market to Black communities versus one that might have been more successful? So one of the kind of iconic stories about Pharrell Communications was that When McDonald's had the You Deserve a Break Day Today campaign, which I believe came out in about 69, they tried to create an African-American version of it where they used the same copy, You Deserve a Break Today, and they included in the advertisement a picture of an African-American couple, maybe on a date. They're very close to each other. The woman is gorgeous. She has an Afro and some kind of African-inspired jewelry, and they tried this ad And it did not quite resonate with African-American consumers. And people were wondering, well, why? And what Burrell Communications provided in the way of feedback for McDonald's is that they said, for African-Americans, we don't see McDonald's as a break. We see McDonald's as a quick and cheap place to eat, to go do what we need to do and maybe return later. And this idea of one having a break in a society that was so overwhelming in terms of lack of access to opportunities and structural racism, they felt like break was not the language to use. And so what they did successfully was to create two campaigns around that time, getting down with McDonald's, which was supposed to be a little bit cooler. And it was about this idea that McDonald's is an ever-present part of one's day. And then another ad campaign that was more successful was so good to have around. And it alluded to the fact that so many businesses and so many institutions had abandoned the places where African-Americans resided and that McDonald's was asserting itself as still a presence in the absence of 
other businesses, that that actually really did speak to consumers. I love it. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea that at this time, Black America is asking for a lot. There's a lot of you know structural racism happening. There's problems in education. There's problems in housing. And in many ways, the government didn't answer the call to fix those. You know, McDonald's, to say it that way, sounds a little trite, but <laughs> that at least that private business was trying to maybe fill in some gap in this sort of smaller way. Can you talk a little bit about just what sort of race capitalism or black capitalism is? Well, black capitalism is this ideological commitment to ensuring that African Americans receive their access to political participation through economic success. And it's an ideology that has sometimes changed its name, but at the heart of it is this idea that attempts to try to gain equal protection under the law or one's full civil rights will never happen unless African-Americans are able to stand on solid economic footing and grounding. And what that ideology has created is opportunities for people who are successful in business to kind of become unelected spokespeople and leaders and power brokers for African-American communities. And so in the 19th century, after the end of slavery and the period of emancipation, you see the growth of Black-owned banks, all Black towns in which the entire high street or downtown district is populated with Black-owned businesses. You see an emphasis in the early historically Black colleges and universities to encourage Black business ownership. And it's often done with an understanding that the business person will be the person who's negotiating the terms of how the community is going to access resources and power on behalf of the community. And in many ways, even though my book is largely about the 60s and 70s, the African-American franchisee really sees themselves as playing with that historical role, like operating in that same mode of the person who is going to broker various relationships on behalf of the community. What does that look like today, just to give it a little more context? I think it's the kind of thing that we see today where after the election of Donald Trump, you know, Kanye West and the athlete Jim Brown and Steve Harvey show up at Trump Tower. And while they may not particularly agree with Trump, they make the argument about the possibility of Trump bringing some economic opportunities to underserved communities. I think gestures like that are cynical and problematic from my political and historical view, because what they do is they strip the notion that any group of people can make claims on the state based on existing in a society. And it transfers a lot of, I think, what a robust public system should provide onto these corporate and governmental partnerships. And I think that For vulnerable communities, this creates more peril than possibility. Other versions of it that you see is the way that celebrities who have made a lot of money in the entertainment industry or athletics then start to talk to the larger public about their business strategy, right? And, you know, this is how you should save money and this is how you should be an entrepreneur. And it effaces all of the 
privileges that they've received and just the sheer impossibility that an everyday person will become a millionaire. It sounds like part of this idea of black capitalism is this idea that the markets will meet the needs of the people. I guess you've said that sort of that really wasn't the case. And can you say a little bit more about that, why you believe that that sort of wouldn't be enough? Yeah, markets don't ever meet the needs of the people because markets are predicated on economic relationships that include some and exclude others. And so this idea that you can support Black capitalism as a way of responding to civil rights is, I've been using this analogy, it's like if I go into someone's home and I steal a sandwich and they say, whoa, you just took my sandwich and I give them an orange, it's confusing. (laughs) The person's not made whole because they want their sandwich back and the orange has nothing to do with the disappearance of the sandwich. All of this is to say that in a time in which communities are asking for better resources for the elderly, for youth, for jobs, some type of relief and reprieve from police brutality, and they get an opportunity to either franchise a McDonald's or buy at a Black-owned McDonald's, it is the orange, right? It's sort of like neat, but what about all the uh, <laughs> the other stuff? Yeah, what about the other stuff? And that's the thing I found so infuriating when I was doing the research for this book. Communities that had these terrible uprisings where people are so frustrated and there's so much loss, when they're asked what's wrong, they're very clear about what the structural inequalities that animated violence and chaos and the fact that it then gets filtered through this idea that, well, what people will do is if they have greater access to markets or can be greater participators in markets, then it will relieve all of the other anxieties and, and questions that they have. It's just it's just not true. But it's such a seductive idea because justice is really hard. Running a business is hard, but it is a lot easier to provide someone an opportunity to own a Dunkin' Donuts than to say, okay, we're really going to invest in this idea of justice. One of the things I found really interesting about your work was learning more about the role in sort of the taxpayers or government in funding Black franchisees in this era. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So the Nixon administration was a good friend to fast food and had tried to create cover of its anti-civil rights positions by promoting Black capitalism. And one thing that they did through the Small Business Administration and through an entity that they created called the Office of Minority Business Enterprise is they provided a series of loans and grants to African-Americans who were interested in business. And one of the things that potential participants discovered was that these programs really did favor people who went into franchising because they had the guarantees of the large corporate parent behind them. And they had partnerships with banks and they had the capacity to lower fees in order to create passage for African-American franchises. And so through these grant programs, essentially taxpayers subsidized the building of franchise locations in inner city 
America. And even after the end of the Nixon administration, uh, future programs like the Empowerment Zone programs and various economic development programs also contributed to bringing more fast food in poor and low-income parts of the country. Well, and I we won't spend much time on this, but I think it's worth pointing out that when we look around today, in many ways, that's sort of a criticism that poor neighborhoods or Black neighborhoods are sort of flooded with fast food and that that creates all sorts of negative impacts on health, and the obesity e- epidemic, et cetera. But at this point in time, it was seen like somewhat as a victory. Yes. And so that's the kind of change in perspective that is sometimes difficult from our 2020 perspective to understand. Fast food as the villain in the story of American health emerges a little bit later in the late 1980s and 1990s with the Surgeon General issuing reports about cholesterol and high in saturated fats. But previous to that, the portion size of fast food was smaller, and people believed that the introduction of a giant like McDonald's into inner city communities was a signal of progress. The fact that an African-American could be at the helm, that a business like that could operate successfully, that could be a presence in the community, a number of Black communities really supported it. And McDonald's particularly had the sanction of many of the giants of the civil rights movement behind it, endorsing this as an opportunity for African-American economic development. I have a quote from, I believe, your Vox.com article that I'd love to read you and get some feedback on. So the quote is, I was so irked by the ways that people who are concerned about nutrition and health would talk about the relationships of communities of color to fast food, as if these are inevitable affinities that were in people's blood. So that's the end of the quote. Do you think that there's a sort of racism of pity coming here, maybe even from white liberals or people who think of themselves as woke? Yeah, I think that embedded in conversations about food and nutrition is a lot of castigation of the choices that people make, the choices that they make for their children and for their communities. And often these critiques are separated from just the history of the various factors that have constrained people's food choices. And so I often say that I think it's important to tell people about, you know, how great kale is. Kale is great. French fries are delicious. Both things can exist at the same time. But I think one of the great missteps of the healthy food and food justice movement in some of its articulations is that it loses sight of the fact that the relationship between fast food and communities of color in the United States have very little to do with the food and a lot to do with a series of experiences and resources that fast food in these communities have provided that make the kale argument a little bit hard. Because if McDonald's is the site of that first job, the place where you know people can still work when there's very little work, when it's the place you register to vote, when the local McDonald's franchise owner is the one who's giving you your check for your college scholarship, to then tell the person that fast food is evil or fast food is bad loses sight of the multiple relationships that people have with McDonald's. So we're recording this in mid-April 2020. A lot of people, myself included, have been on sort of shelter-at-home orders for weeks. And at this point, we don't know how much longer those kinds of orders will be in place. 
One of the news stories within the last few weeks is how the coronavirus or COVID-19 is sort of disproportionately affecting Black communities. And you and I hadn't talked previously about whether we would discuss this, but when I hear about sort of the factors that lead to that being the case, many of them sounded like sort of traditional structural racism kinds of concerns. And I'm wondering just because to me, that so closely mirrored other work on sort of structural racism. If you could just highlight a few of the sort of key factors that might make a Black American more likely to be at risk for something like that. So when we think about all of the requests that have been made upon people in response to COVID, sheltering at home, only doing work if you're considered an essential worker, you know, being vigilant about your health, we start to see the cracks in the foundation of our society in clearer view. So if you think about African-Americans and health disparity, you have environmental racism and poor housing conditions exacerbating respiratory issues like asthma. And can you give an example of what environmental racism looks like? Because for someone who's never heard that before, it sounds very hypothetical. Oh, so you think about the fact that in places like, for instance, the Bronx, where you have people living in close proximity to industrial plants that are polluting the air. You have communities where people have access to less green space. You have the noise pollution of a great deal of shipping that is also disrupting people's ability to sleep. You have a lack of access to healthcare. And then you also have populations that are doing low-wage service work that exposes them to the public, including working in hospitals and ERs as nurses' aides, nursing assistants in homes for the elderly. You have cleaners in large buildings, including hospitals. You have fast food workers. And then you have communities in which people cannot afford a car and rely on public transportation. And so they are now exposed to even more people. And so all of these factors have created situations like in St. Louis, Missouri, where as of yesterday, all of the COVID deaths were of African-Americans in places like Chicago and Detroit, where you have an outsized proportion of people dying from coronavirus complications who are African-American. You start to see, again, these appeals that were made throughout the 1960s for better access to quality housing, to safe drinking water, to lead-free homes, to good-paying jobs with health insurance. All of these issues kind of blow up in this moment. And so when the Surgeon General made the comment about asking uh, Blacks and Latinos to behave better, to not compromise their health, This is why I wrote this book. It's for people who, even though they're incredibly well-educated and well-versed in medicine and public health, they lose sight of the structural reasons why some people are at a disadvantage by the virtue of their zip code and their race in dealing with the stress that can emerge at any moment. I'm so glad you shared all those specific examples, slash, I want to throw everything off my desk because it makes me very angry, of course. I'm wondering if, what would you recommend at this point? I think particularly on the left, there's been so much more thinking in the last few years about healthcare access for everyone, workers' rights, et cetera, that now with COVID-19, I think people are a little bit more motivated than they have been historically to demand these things, at least of businesses in the short term. Someone hearing all that and hearing about all the problems with 
forms of structural racism, environmental racism. What do we do with that information? Like, if you didn't know that before and you know it now, what could one do or should one do? What, what should we be demanding? I think that we have to be very careful that this moment is one that fits within the framework of disaster capitalism. And it's this idea that when there is a major calamity, whether it is a natural one like Hurricane Katrina or a political one like the transition from an apartheid government to a democratically elected one in South Africa or a global pandemic like COVID, this is when all the bad ideas come the really bad ideas of how to serve the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. And they are often tied to the market. They are often in the service of suggesting that business has the answer to the problems of civil society. It often leads to privatization and the enrichment of corporate coffers at the expense of public resources. And so I think that You know, the moral dilemma of whether you should eat McDonald's or Taco Bell during a pandemic is less important to me than asking everyone to say when this pandemic is over and we have to rebuild places that have been devastated and gutted, do we depend on each other for solutions or do we look to the market? And we have a very long history of chaos bringing in these various actors that do not improve the health or the wealth of the communities that they swoop upon. After cities burned in 68 and a city burned in 1992 and Ferguson burned in 2014, the first person at the plate is the private sector to say, well, we will give low-wage jobs to people and they will be less frustrated, knowing full well that those jobs don't include quality health care, and it doesn't create an opportunity for people to know that their children are going to safe and secure schools, and it doesn't do anything about feeling like the police can't work in the service of the good of the people. And so I think that right now we just have to be so careful about the forces that will really exploit all of us and say, I have the answer to what just happened. So before we turn to our Think a Little Different round, do you have an ask for the audience? After you read Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, I want you to start thinking about your own relationship to fast food, good, bad, and ugly. And then I want you to think about where you see fast food concentrated. I want you to think about the different contours of where you think of where fast food belongs and where you think it doesn't. And I also want to challenge readers to think about the ways that even when we believe that we are not eating fast food, our relationship to food has been so structured by that market. I often joke with people when I go to book talks is they'll say to me, my kids don't eat McDonald's, you know, I don't let them eat it. But I say, well, do they eat Chipotle? Do you go to Starbucks? Do you eat at Panera? And there's a way that we have segmented fast food. We call it fast casual for the upwardly mobile, and we associate fast food with the poor. And at the end of the day, everyone is eating chicken tenders or chicken nuggets. And so mm-hmm. I want you to really you know, be very thoughtful about your associations with certain kinds of food and why, and use that as an entry point to really examine 
our relationships to these markets that I don't know if we can ever fully avoid, but we can definitely limit the power that they have over individual people and over communities. Well, with that, I'd love to turn to our Think a Little Different round. Okay. What is something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? I've changed my mind about the myth of working hard and making it. And while I was always skeptical of the idea of the American dream, I always felt a little uncomfortable with completely throwing it away because I felt very much my life is the American dream as the daughter of immigrants and being able to go to college and becoming a college professor. So even if I was critical of the rhetoric, I felt like there was some value to it because I knew my own trajectory. But I think in hindsight, what I've realized is that the American dream is not so much the problem, it's the heavy lift that is required of people to imagine the dream and then the amount of luck that one needs in order to fulfill it. Do you have any odd habits that maybe embody your particular worldview? And this doesn't have to be limited to fast food. (laughs) I am strangely a person who likes to scare myself. So I do things that are deeply irrational. Like if I'm driving a far distance late at night, I will actually listen to a true crime podcast (laughs) or I will listen to episodes of Forensic Files on my XM Sirius radio. And that is the worst thing because I'm just totally (laughs) creeped out, but I can't help myself. There's something about immersing myself in that kind of feeling of hypervigilance that I strangely do, even if I say it's scary. And I think that is the part of me that's so drawn to history and to archive. I think I've never grown out of my Nancy Drew phase where I always feel like I'm on the cusp of solving a mystery. Ooh, that's so interesting. Is there a view that's widely held by your peers, and I'll let you define that however you'd like, that you're skeptical of? Is there something that people around you seem to all agree with that you're like, uh, I'm not so sure about that one? I think it's this approach to teaching that I see with a lot of my colleagues, even when we kind of share our same politics. The idea that education, that rigor looks a certain way that one has to be tough in order to be intellectually deep, that to pursue a scholarly interest, that it has to be immersed in some type of kind of painful or self-effacing practice. And I actually think that regardless of what one studies, that there is a place for joy and a place for some type of appropriate levity that I feel like a lot of scholars don't embrace and therefore can be really alienating to others. What does that look like for you? Because as we've alluded to today, you know, a lot of the work that you do has some pretty depressing it's undertones. super depressing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think maybe this is along the lines of things that I've changed my mind upon. I've always had a critique of fast food, but I didn't have an appreciation for the creative energy that emerges from developing the world of fast food. As part of my research, I went to the unofficial McDonald's Museum in San Bernardino, California, and it just has rows and rows of 
every type of McDonald's ephemera you can think of. So, you know, manager's ties and commemorative glasses from the 84 Olympics and the sleeves for pie that you buy at McDonald's from around the world and the clamshell styrofoam packaging for burgers. And in looking at the archives of people who worked in the fast food industry, who created commercials, who created the Playland equipment and the McDonald land characters, all of that stuff is incredibly imaginative. And as someone who appreciates the imaginative worlds of Sesame Street and of Star Wars and all of those types of things, I lost sight of just how much imagination is necessary to create some of these brands. And so while I'm very critical of what they're selling, I've come to a newfound appreciation of what it takes to make a Hamburglar legible to an audience. It's not easy. And I think it's it's the type of work that needs to be celebrated. And when you think about, you know, getting back to what you'd mentioned about sort of the joy of teaching, how do you bring joy to some of these conversations with your students? So students are like, oh my gosh, this stuff is so overwhelming. And I think what I try to do is mirror the fact that I'm also at odds about how I feel about capitalism and how I feel about markets and how I enjoy French fries, but I'm afraid that French fries create a supply chain nightmare in some parts of the world and the workers frying French fries aren't getting paid enough. I think that when I sit in the contradiction and the confusion that new knowledge or new frames can bring me as a person, you know, I concede that point and I think students can appreciate that and also feel less pressured by acting immediately and instead first kind of reflecting on those that kind of discomfort in order to move into a place of greater clarity. I love that part of teaching. I love the parts where we don't know what we're going to do, but we think about it deeply. And I think the joy comes from learning after all these years of teaching how to modulate my tone. Every day cannot be the most serious takedown of capitalism. You have to take seriously that there are systems that create a lot of pleasure and a lot of excitement and a lot of fun for people, even if they are not the most whole or the most just. And I think that I try not to pretend that it's all gravitas and I don't pretend that it's all easy to decide what's good and what's bad. So on Innovation for All, we like to focus on this intersection of, in many cases, it's been technology, but business or technology and diversity and inclusion issues. So you could see why we were excited about having you on the show. Who are two people you think would be interesting for us to speak to on the podcast? And I'll add that I feel like there has been a particular lack of not just Black voices, but focusing on sort of issues among Black Americans. So I'm white and I there are things that obviously I might not see. There's a robotics professor. Her name's Ayana Howard, and she's just really cool. And she's at Georgia Tech, and she, I believe, runs the Institute for Robotics and Intelligent Machines. And she's just very cool. And she has a TED Talk. And as a Black woman in robotics, like I think she just embodies a lot of kind of the complexities of an academic career and she brings so much joy to it because like she's talking to students about like making things and 
I'm not a science person, clearly. So there's like robot-y things in it that I think <laughs> she'd be a cool person to talk to. There's this woman out in Berkeley who works on questions of ethical design and architecture as it relates to prisons. Ooh, interesting. And she's really cool. Her name is Deanna Van Buren. And I'm at her conference years, years ago, and she's just so cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like us to discuss that maybe we didn't hit on? The only thing I would like to add. Yes. So when we talk about innovation, I often feel outside of that conversation because I don't know how to code and I've never made anything. (laughs) But the place where that language really speaks to me is as a historian who wrote a book about McDonald's without using McDonald's archive is something that I'm very proud of. And for many historians, we have to put together a puzzle about the past. And sometimes there's gatekeeping for archival records for corporations. And people will say, well, if they're not going to open up their records to you, then you can't write a book like this. But what I discovered is that when I took the frame away from this idea that McDonald's is everyone's story in the same way, and I focused on African-American life and culture, all of these documents and all of these records and all of these correspondence, like they all just kind of emerged. And it was because I was willing to shift the frame of the narrative to highlight communities that are often not the center of the stories of business history and business development. And so this might be my last act of innovation, but I'm particularly proud of that. That's wonderful. No, and I I love to use this idea of innovation really broadly, and also this idea of diversity really broadly, that we need to have different perspectives, and that's not limited to just sort of gender diversity or racial diversity, but it could be diversity coming from introverts, or I think this is a great example of really thinking outside the box for how to conduct that research. Well, thank you very much, and thank you so much for reaching out. Oh, you're so welcome. So, Marsha Chatlin, the book is Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. We will absolutely link to that in show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Do you support having more diversity of ideas in business? I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Rachel Shea, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com. All words, no numbers. And in case you didn't know, we're on social. Feel free to tweet us at InForAllPodcast, all words, no numbers, on your favorite social platform. <laughs>